to another episode of The Extras. My name is Candy. And I'm Raj. Hello, Candy. How are you today? Yeah, I'm pretty good. How are you going, Raj? I'm okay. The rain's coming back. It is. We had a good <laughs> pub. I had a good public holiday of um, going to the beach on Monday, which is really lovely. Yeah, yeah. made the most of it on Monday too. But yeah. Anyway. I don't think I've had that much sun on my skin, skin for quite some time, so it was really good. Well, look, people can talk to you and I about some suntan tips or something sometime. <laughs> yeah. um, we're on uh, this episode at The Extras, answering your questions from the Sunday sermon that you've sent in. Thank you for all the questions and the interest that we've had. Um, the passage was on Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 to 20. Now, Raj, can you give us a bit of a rundown of the key ideas or the main teaching from this passage? Yeah, sure. So, look, this it's a great passage and it's the, the transfiguration has happened in the first part of Matthew 17. That was previous week. And so now what's happening is um, the inner core of disciples, that is Peter, James and John, they are coming down the mountain with Jesus uh, and there's a section of um, them developing faith, I think is the way I, I ended up putting it, yeah. as Jesus is teaching them different aspects and connecting different dots. Then they come down and encounter some crowds, of course, and the crowds were not part of... They haven't seen the Transfiguration. And there's just a fascinating interaction um, between um, then Jesus and his disciples. The, the scene's kind of set with what happens on the crowd, but really I, I just think the this whole section is about the developing faith of the disciples. Um, and, of course, it culminates in these remarkable words in verse 20. Uh, because you, they couldn't drive out the demon because mm, they had so little faith. Yeah. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And It's pretty amazing words. They're amazing yeah. words. They're words that lots of people have spent lots of time writing about, thinking about. Yeah. Um, I feel like they're the kind of words that you can expect to be able to get a placard from Christian. <laughs> Hang over your house. I'm, yeah. I'm absolutely sure that is the case. Yeah. yeah there you go. So we've, we're going to start off with some questions on the details of the passage. So someone's, um, well, we've actually got three people asking three separate questions, but really all about um, John the Baptist. So first of all, um, John the Baptist is mentioned in verse 11, and Jesus says that Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Now, this question is about Elijah, which... Um, which is actually John the Baptist, um, but let's just say Elijah. How does Elijah restore all things? Yeah, thank you, Candy. So this really is trying to take us back to the Elijah figure, I think, as is often mm. often um, talked about. And Elijah, the Elijah figure is... So Elijah is a major Old Testament character, um, um, you're looking up a reference there. Well, you can find him in Two Kings. So Two Kings. And then it's interesting because Elijah was one of the people who appeared in the Transfiguration, which is trying to take us back to the promises around Elijah. And it's John the Baptist who came onto the scene um, and and really came quite intentionally um, dressed in clothes that Elijah was dressed in. And I'm looking now, I'm familiar with it in Mark. Yeah. Here we go, so, Matthew chapter 3. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, you go. So Matthew chapter 3 is where um, uh, John the Baptist come, came 
And verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. And, and there is kind of the big clue that John the Baptist has come as the promised Elijah-like figure. Mm. And, and so the promises around Elijah want to restore all things. So Jesus is talking about it. There's a new era coming. Yeah. And, and John the Baptist was the one who came to prepare the way. Mm. Talks about in Matthew 3. And that is then picked up on Matthew 17 on the transfiguration. And part of a significance there because, you know, Moses was the other figure and, and the exodus that Moses led. So Jesus is trying to bring together all of these different ideas that the disciples, interestingly, had not yet put together. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's not so much Elijah, as in Old Testament Elijah, it's the Elijah figure who was promised to come. Who restores who's all things. restoring all things. Yeah. So in 2 Kings, um, also in chapter 1a, because you mentioned in Matthew um, 3, 4, that John the Baptist wore a leather belt and he was eating locusts. So in 2 Kings 1.8, um, they talk about Elijah and it says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So there's similarities in the way that they were dressed, um, as you said. Because yeah. we're told that from the Old Testament. Um, and, and you're saying sort of the rest- restoration of all things is to do with him preaching a baptism of repentance and getting people to turn back to the law of Moses. Yeah. Um, yeah, which we also get um, in Malachi 4, don't we? Where um, in Malachi 4, um, verses 5 to 6, is the promise to send Elijah. But then right before that in verse 4 is, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horem for Israel. Which is what then... John the Baptist comes into the scene to yeah. do in Matthew. And Isaiah 40 is in there as well. I think I had a few verses yeah. from Isaiah 40. Um, so it, it, Jesus is trying to really crack open the window into the Old Testament where there's extraordinary expectation that's coming. Yeah. Um, and John the, ba- John the Baptist is the Elijah figure that prepares the way. Mm. So Matthew 3, we've talked about some other passages, 2 Kings chapter 1 going back into the Old Testament. Um, Isaiah 40 um, and, and sorry, there was another one you just talked about. Malachi, too. is it? Malachi 4, yeah. yeah. So they're the different passages that then come together in Matthew 3 with mm. John the Baptist and Jesus then in Matthew 17 is, and the transfiguration is picking up on that. But the disciples haven't put those references together. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's quite sad as well because he was meant to come and restore all things, but then he did come. Um, and he did preach a baptism of repentance, but then he ends up getting killed because yeah. he um, he confronts Herod um, yeah. for having his his um, brother's wife Herodias. Um, so that's that's pretty that's that's pretty sad. <laughs> it is pretty sad. Yeah. And so he does come, but then they did whatever they wanted to him. And and Jesus builds on that, doesn't he too? Um, in in Matthew seventeen, mm. verse twelve. Elijah has already come, so he's talking about John the Baptist, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. That's a fascinating phrase, talking about Herodias and the beheading of John the Baptist. And then it says, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So there's a parallel that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this sort of covers the questions we had about John. You know, there was someone else who asked, did John have Elijah's memory? I mean, that's a fascinating question because we know Elijah was taken up to heaven. <laughs> it is memory transfer. But um, I think it's more the physical features 
um, the, you know, the leather belt, um, the, the, the fact that Jesus also says, um, clarifies that John the Baptist is Elijah in terms of the second Elijah to come. Um, so yeah, we've got questions about verse 17 as well. So when we look at verse 17, um, Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, Raj, who is he talking to? Is he talking to the crowd, the father, or the disciples? Um, that's a great question. I think, to a certain extent, all of the above. Mm. And yet, the way this text is placed, which is an episode really focused very much on the disciples, the inner core of disciples. Another question, in fact, someone asked me on Sunday morning, is it talking to the inner core of the disciples or all of the yeah, disciples? Yeah, is it just the three? You know, is it just Peter, yeah. James and John? And, and so... The way the text is here placed, and I think the parallel passages place it in the same location, mm. straight after coming down the mountain, it just seems quite clear what the, the immediate reference Jesus has is exasperated because of how Pe Peter, James and John haven't put the pieces together. But the same thing is also true of the other disciples, and the same thing is also true of the Jewish leadership and the crowds who mm. haven't yet put it all together. Yeah. And I, I wonder if a parallel might be candy. Um, you know, here we are doing the extras today. Uh, we have both come from doing different things this morning. Mm. And here we are. Yeah. And uh, now this is not the case, but for me anyway, maybe it is for you. <laughs> but, but if we come from another conversation in which we're frustrated about something, it's going to come up in our conversation now. Yeah. Most like, sorry, yeah. like it might, might not. Yeah. So Jesus has just gone through the transfiguration with Peter, James and John. They've seen, they've been led into this huge picture. They've come down the mountain. They haven't put the pieces together. Then this happens with the crowds. Um, and Jesus, he's, he's, he's exasperated. Mm. And he goes on and he, he talks about this. How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I stay with you? Yeah. So the immediate reference, the immediate kind of catalyst might be a bit better word. I think, um, and Candy, you might have some thoughts too. You and I haven't talked about this. Yeah. Um, the immediate reference, I think, is Peter, James, and John. Yeah. But that is also symbolic of the rest of the disciples. And that is also symbolic of the whole generation. Yeah. That haven't put things together. Yeah. I think the, the generation word definitely makes you feel like it's a bit broader. Like Jesus may be talking to them, but using kind of a word that is more broad than just the specific yeah. names. Um, yeah, which is uh, which is a little bit, um, yeah. And you know, some of the comments is he, is, is sort of asking a question, isn't this really harsh? It seems unexpected, but I think at least, you know, if we look at, for example, the disciples, they couldn't heal the boy. They couldn't heal the son um, who has been possessed by the demon, by a demon and the question, you know, that they later ask is in verse 19, why could we not cast it out? But if you, if you sort of have a look at it, um, which is, um, which I guess sort of the Greek really brings up because it fronts the, um, the kind of we, it's sort of more the translation, why couldn't we ourselves drive it out? Um, it's, it's clear that they likely weren't relying on Jesus. And this isn't just the three, but the general disciples that they didn't actually trust in Jesus. Um, and I think you also get a sense of that because they end up asking Jesus privately. 
um, likely they were embarrassed. Like, why didn't they ask this in front of the crowd? Um, you know, it where it could have been beneficial for everyone's hearing. But I think, again, it seemed like they might have their own status in mind. Um, so, you know, that with um, the disciples, which I think is also, um, I mean, if even his closest followers didn't understand what he was about. I mean, it's likely the crowd yeah. did not. Um, the question then comes really about the father and where he stands. And um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really know for this one. I mean, um, I know that earlier in when Lachlan was preaching, he spoke about including the father as well in terms of the father going along to Jesus and not trusting in Jesus's disciples, the one that he had conferred authority to do that in um, Matthew chapter 10. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I... I... Look, there's some great ideas for yeah. people to ponder on the extras. That's what it's all about. And mm. I think it's also great to see, for people to see us, Candy, being able to have a discussion and wrestling with the text as well. Yeah. Um, all through Matthew's Gospel so far, if you just flick back through recent pages, there's been just a few chapters earlier, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, the, the Jewish leadership at the time, they, they don't put it together. They should. They're the people entrusted with the yeah. responsibility to see when the Messiah is coming. Mm. And they haven't done that. And the crowds as well. So uh, you, I, I totally agree. The word generation, it is broader. Um, and you look at Matthew's Gospel and you, you just see this build-up that's happening. And at the same time, the disciples are led into a picture that the rest of the crowds are not yeah. at this point in Matthew's Gospel. That's um, yeah, that's true. And and now I think for us, you know, for for those who are listening to the extras, what does all of this mean for us? We are people who live on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection mm. and this side of the Bible being available. And we have all of that put together. I think our responsibility is greater. Yeah. Um Imagine what Jesus would say to our generation. <laughs> and we have the Holy Spirit as well. And we have the Holy Spirit and Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. And I think also because this is the extras, we like to sort of provide extra things. I think um, another reference you might like to chase up for this particular verse is that it actually mirrors very closely with Deuteronomy 32 20, when um, Moses sings his song and he speaks about Israel and about the golden calf incident. And he also uses the, the very same kind of words of generation, perverse, and faithlessness. Yeah. So um, that is actually a repeated motif we get from Deuteronomy um, 32, chapter 32, verses 20. So you can chase that up if you'd like. So now we're moving on to verse 20 of um, chapter 17 in Matthew. Now this question is saying, could you please expand on this verse a little? Even with the explanation, so Raj, you gave an explanation um, this person is saying, even with that explanation about moving mountains, amounting to making highway for the Lord, I don't seem to see this borne out in life. I don't have the power or influence to command anything about, you know, even when they're proclaiming the gospel. With prayer and willingness, they don't necessarily get the opportunities they want to tell the gospel. All the conversations don't go the way that they hope. So how do you sort of explain that if yeah. this verse is saying nothing will be impossible? Yeah, so... It's a great question. Mm. Um, I think as I talked about this, I went back to... Uh, where did I go back to? I'm thinking Isaiah 40. Mm. And 
why don't we just do that now, just refresh our memories. Mm. And so I've, Isaiah 40 verse 3, uh, let's start there. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, so that's talking about the new era that's coming, which then in Matthew chapter 3, when it's talking about John the Baptist, those words are picked up. And in verse 4, Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. And I think what Jesus here is doing in mm. Matthew 17, he's trying to help people. He's really filling out that category we talked about a moment ago, restoring all things. And it's talking about a period, Isaiah 40, the expectation is, you know, that the, What's, hap- what's going to happen in the world when all things are restored or when that time is, when the era comes, mountains are going to be levelled. Yeah. I think that's the reference Jesus is trying to pick on. He's not trying to, um, with all due respect to all concerned, he's not trying to give people a, you know, a, um, a placard they can go and put up on their fridge or something like that. Yeah. And the other thing I think here, just interesting the way you put the, the questions coming come in just now it's not about my power yeah it's about the kingdom of god mm. and you know we we live in a sinful world and we have great sorry we have sinful desires we also have um godly desires to see yeah. people converted yeah but if we're told to pray to god but we also know the reality that God may not answer our prayers in the way that we wish. Yeah. Yeah. So we should be faithful in proclaiming. Mm. Um, this is about all things being restored. I think Lachlan and I both picked up on the same illustration or a similar thing. We hadn't talked about it beforehand, actually. It's not about self-centered ends. Yeah. But but that's that's on one extreme. Um, but it is about God-centered ends. Yeah. But even then, the way, you know, I have people yeah. who are close to me that I love, I want them to know Jesus. Um, my role is to be faithful and nothing will be impossible when God wills it. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think a lot of this comes down to us understanding actually what is the parameters of the commandment and the promise. So in here, right, the disciples in chapter 10 of Matthew have clearly been given the authority to drive out demons. So if you look at um, chapter 10, right, Jesus tells them to go to, um, not going to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of Israel in chapter 10, verse six. But then, you know, he says, he talks about um, giving them authority as well, uh, you know, to heal the sick, to drive out the demons, I'm just trying to find where exactly it says that. Yeah, there you go. Um, so chapter 10, verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You've received without pain, give without pay. So Jesus had clearly given them the authority and the power to do that. And their failure to do that showed their lack of trust in Jesus. So the extent of, you know, um, moving mountains from X to Y 
it needs to be limited by the parameter of actually the authority and the command that Jesus had given to the apostle. Because what they failed to do was not to move mountains, but actually to heal this boy that was possessed by a demon, that Jesus had specifically given them authority to do so. Now, what is the authority that we have been given in the commission? Well, we've been given the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples of all nations. And in particular, Jesus' command is to baptize and to teach them to observe everything that he has commanded us. But it doesn't say to us, you then have the authority that everyone you teach will necessarily become a disciple. Yeah. So I think there needs to be kind of clarity around what actually Jesus has given us authority to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we see even in the lives of the apostles that at the end of the day they were persecuted and not everyone believed and many of them were martyred and died. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think having some clarity around that will just limit the way. Because I think when people take this verse, it's very easy to go like, well, I want the authority to, you know... Um, have this much amount of money in my bank. I mean, some people would take it that way, you know, or I want the authority to get this job that I've just applied for. But that's actually, like, the Bible doesn't say anything about, no. the, like, that's, I think, what you said about the God-centered ends. Yeah. And, and I think it has to be God-centered ends along with the promises of God of what he will do when we pursue those ends. Yeah. And I don't think God promises everyone that we proclaim the gospel to will be saved. Yeah, and... Candy, you've uh, I've been trying to say in Matthew seventeen. That's the context is restoring all things, and and you've broadened that out to Matthew's gospel mm. as well, and of course the whole Bible. So they're all of the things we need to bring to bear to to this, and I think it can be really challenging um, to separate out our own sinful desires, yeah, um, that feed into our wishes. But also, the other distinction we've both talked about is just uh, what what you know our plans might not be God's plans, mm. even though what we desire could godly ends. Yeah. yeah, and then God's plans of you know um, when the Bible tells us you haven't been tempted, that basically you know God will not tempt you beyond what you can enjoy in terms of being forced into sin living kind of God wants us and gives us the power to live a holy life, right? That's pretty impossible in yeah. a sense to keep repenting in life, to keep saying sorry, to keep surrendering our lives to God, to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. These are all the impossible things that God does give us the authority or the power by his spirit to be able to do. So there's some pretty impossible, amazing things. Um, now, we're going to move on from the specific questions on the verses to something a bit more general. Um, it is still a question about a verse, but this one's saying, my translation, Holman, has verse 21 in Matthew 17, whereas the version preached from NIV doesn't. Why is there a difference? Yeah, great question. And uh, this is why it's great for us to have the extras. Yes, that's right. Um, to be able yep. to talk about these things. Yeah, so verse 21 in most translations is not there. And this is getting us into a whole category called textual criticism. Um, and the way the the Bible, the authority of the Bible is in the text as originally given. But of course, the text as originally given was written on physical materials that disintegrated. Yeah. Not like the modern age. And so, now that happened over a long period of time. So it is no longer the case that we have access to the original materials. So how do we know what's in the New yeah. Testament? So yeah. so and the Old Testament as well. Yeah. And 
so what happened over time is people recognised the Bible, the manuscripts of the Bible as having authority mm. and significance. Um, uh, copying things in those days was not as simple as it is these days. You know, the, yeah, there's the no photocopy photo we yeah. have around the corner here just didn't exist. So what they did, they had professional people who copied things. Um, and they did that when it was really significant. You didn't mm. do that for, yeah. you know, the birthday card I got the other day. Um, so that's what people did. Uh, now, what that means is over, as time went on, different materials were used. They lasted longer and the Dead Sea Scrolls is an example. The Old Testament text sections of Isaiah and other bits where, where things did last a long period of time. And so we now have different branches of different manuscripts that have been copied through that process. Yeah, and we're talking about lots of them. We're not we're talking, talking about, about five. Lots. We're not yep. talking about five or six. We're talking about lots. Yeah. So what's happened then in the modern day, people have been able to, in the same way that we might trace a family tree, mm. people have been able to trace the manuscript um, copying process. And what happens sometimes, not very much, but sometimes, is that differences crept in. Yeah. So you look at, you know, one family of manuscripts. A family's not just one, it's several, as you just said. You look at another one and you come to a verse like verse 21 and you see some manuscripts have a verse, what we call a verse 21, mm. and other manuscripts do not have what we call a verse 21. And so you then have to go through a process of working out, well, because the authority is in the original text. Yeah. And so you have to try to work out as best you can what was the original text. Yeah. With prayer and with God's help, um, but it is a human judgment nonetheless. Yeah. And so verse 21 is an example. There's different principles people work out. One of those principles is, was it used somewhere else? Yeah. And if it was used somewhere else there's a good chance people were trying to what's called harmonise it. Yeah. So in this case, in verse 21, the parallel passage in Mark's Gospel um, has a verse very similar to verse what's in verse 21 or in a footnote in some translations. Yeah. Um, so that's Mark 9.29. Yep. So Mark 9.29. Have you got that in front of you, Candy? Uh, I can get that in front of me. Um, but it talks about um, uh, the took, same story, but it says like this kind does not come up by, yeah. but by prayer. And, and then it's actually got another footnote, which is some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's different, there's families and families and families. So here is an example where people, there's different principles they use. And so one of those is it, it, it makes sense that somewhere in that copying process, good and faithful people trying to do the right thing, they said, okay, in Mark's gospel it says here, and so probably that was left out. And so they then inserted into yeah. a family of manuscripts. Because yeah. it's much more likely that scribes, um, with when people copying the Bible with, so, with reverence for the text, is more likely to add something rather than take something out. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. shorter versions are usually the more reliable ones. So shorter ones are usually more reliable. So one of those principles is, you know, if it's used somewhere else, you know, then probably what's happening is harmonisation. So that's yeah. what that's what's happening here. But then some translations, they give you 
more information. You know, the, the Greek New Testaments that you and I use candy that's on my shelf, it actually has footnotes of all of the different variations. Yeah, so it gives you actually the different manuscripts. And it tells you the particular manuscripts. Yeah, so for, for this one particular one in verse 21, the reason why we don't think it's in there um, and and the NIV and the ESV and other translation. I mean, I'm surprised that Holman has it, but, you know, uh, the translators, they have made that decision. But um, apart from sort of what Raj was saying about harmonization, there's also the fact that um, very reliable 4th century texts, such as, and I'm just going to say some terms, you can Google them if you want, but like the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, so those are pretty reliable um, uh, Greek texts of the New Testament, um, they don't actually have this verse. And so the older sort of texts don't have it. So even when you're judging all of the different manuscripts, the older ones are the more reliable, well, would tend to be the more reliable ones because they're closer to the date of when it was first written. So yeah. that's why. Yeah. yeah. Great question. Thank you. Um, we also have another question on how does Jesus expect people to understand and follow his gospel when he doesn't say outright what he wants from us? I'm not entirely sure where from this passage maybe this is coming from, but Raj, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I kind of think all over the Bible, it, it does talk about what God wants. That's the whole framework of the Bible. Um, we, we go back to the Ten Commandments and just, mm -hmm. you know, foundationally it's, it's about worshipping God. It's about not having idols. Yeah. And in many ways, everything else springs from there. Jesus talks about denying yourself and following him. Yeah. So he makes that very clear, doesn't he, in chapter 16, yeah. um, verses 24 to 27. He does say what he wants from them, you know? Yep. Yeah. Take up, his, take up the cross, take up your cross, follow me. Yeah. And, and at the same time, probably just worth saying, just because it's such a common misunderstanding, the entry point to understand the gospel, I, I don't think is what we should do. So I'm sure it's not what we should do. It's what God has done for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and of course that is connected all over the Bible. Passages, James 2, I talked about Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, just... Mm. Even back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, the way that Adam and Eve were created, um, it's, it's, we're there to be in relationship with God, which looks, God has told us what that looks like. Yeah, and there's a progressive yeah. revelation, is yeah. it, to Jesus, who is, you know, the Word of God, who is God incarnate and the complete revelation of yeah. God. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's a good question. I think it's trying to get at maybe, um, Maybe at this point in the revelation, because Jesus hadn't died and risen yet. Um, I mean, it's interesting, right? He talks to the disciples in verse 24, but not necessarily to the whole crowd. Now, in Mark, he does address the crowd, but in here, he addresses the disciples. Um, so, yeah, it does seem like maybe he doesn't tell everyone, but he also hasn't died and risen yet. So um, the, the spirit hasn't been given um, and Jesus's atonement hasn't happened. So, yeah, I, I don't know how much people would have understood and followed him, given the disciples all fled in the end. Um, yeah, without him yeah. doing that. So, like you said, it's I got to be what God has done for us, which from the beginning with the garden and then with the exodus, with everything. But in here, it's finally on the cross. Yeah. And in the resurrection. Yeah. 
Now we've got another question which is not related. This is the last question. It's not really related to the um, sermon, but more to the Sunday Sunday service. So we have someone from Night Church who just want to say, um, can you explain why we say a confession of sin aloud at the beginning of service? I get that it's helpful for those who may be Christian, but Raj, how does it work for those who are new or newish? So you've talked about seven, eight hundred visitors. Is it isn't it unhelpful or daunting for them if most other people say it and they're just sort of sitting there? <laughs> yeah. What a great question. Um, oh, there's so many things that come to mind here. This is the extras, so yeah. Um, let me just offer a couple of thoughts. So, so one is you know one John chapter one verses eight and nine just talk about the power of confession, and when we come together in church. So here are some kind of principles, and then maybe I'll just make a few comments about history. Um, so I think that's where it kind of comes from, the, the power of confession and doing it together. We live in an, an individualistic society, so we're not so used to doing things together, mm. but that is a very powerful thing. So how is it powerful? Uh, because we're identifying as a group of people who together have fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah. And, and it helps us teach one another. It helps us identify together. We approach Christ together. Um, uh, the image that always comes to my mind is Israel gathered around Mount Sinai, gathered around God on his terms, and God communicates. Yeah. So that's a very powerful thing of people um, expressing their own worship to God but also listening to God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the assembly word, the church word, um, uh, the ecclesia is is the New Testament word, and so that you know that that's one thing that's going on there. I actually think it's a very powerful thing for a non-Christian to hear as well, mm. because that's our the whole foundation of us being able to meet together as God's yeah. people. Yeah. Historically, uh, I think it's interesting, and it, this question reflects it, and I think I've identified it's from Night Church. Because over a period of time, if you go to early morning church now that's using a prayer book service, most weeks they would have a confession of sin of some kind. Mm. Um, and other things as well, like like a declaration of faith in one of yeah. the creeds and different things. Yeah. I think over time we have lost in more recent times. Um, and, and with good reason, can I say, I understand where it's come from. We wanted to make our services more contemporary, more accessible, less jargonistic I, I understand there's been really good it's come from a good place but there's also a power in saying things uh, and teaching one another truths yeah which which in many cases has gone out now we don't say it every week we, we, we mix it up in different things and Peter our magnification pastor he writes specific prayers also which people would have noticed for particular yeah, we did series. that for Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes yeah. and and so it's also a very powerful teaching tool. Mm. And over the years, if you, if you have the, the honour and privilege to talk with older generations about their faith and about their understanding, I think most would be quite amazed at what a rich understanding they have, mm. which has come over a long period of time through saying things together on a regular basis. Yeah. And it becomes ingrained into you, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit of a... It gives, it provides you with words to say. Like even now, I can think of, um, you know, when we confess, we say we're sorry to God for what 
we have done for what we have failed to do but it, it's in thought word and deed yeah. which is all the prayer book isn't yeah. it the prayer book language that you've quoted one of the prayers of confessions yeah, yeah. from the prayer book yeah. just because I've done it so many yeah. times yeah. yeah so I think we've lost some I mean you, if Sarah was here she would talk to us about the power of memory verses yeah and saying things together so we're trying to work out what that looks like yeah. When it comes, not just to night church, but all of our congregations would love thoughts and ideas about that. Yeah. Um, um, I think there's kind of a bit of a line here because um, when you, we look at the Reformation, the Bible was in Latin. So like the services were not actually intelligible to the people that were sitting there. So we obviously don't want to go down that line. Like all of our services need to be in a language where people can understand and it's intelligible. But then there's also things about the gospel which will always be different. So the very fact that we believe we are sinful, we believe we deserve God's judgment, that's going to be very jarring. Um, and so when, yeah, we, when we confess and say these things together, it's going to be jarring for whoever listens to them. But I think this question is getting a point of, um, well, when we say it together, that's a little bit weird because people don't tend to say things together. But then I said, well, we say it together for a reason as well, like you said, because we're trying to teach one another because there's a commonality to what we believe. And so I think yeah. it's not unintelligible. It is intelligible. But, yeah, I think we, there's a kind of a, a line there. That there is doing. a line yeah. there. And that's where I think over the years people have tried to rest. And, you know, yeah. the, the question and the principle is a really important one. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about just the importance of intelligibility for the yeah. outsider. Yeah. Yeah, so context is, you know, church is for God's people gathered together. That is church. But 1 Corinthians 14 says those gatherings must also be accessible. Yeah. So you're, you're going back to the Reformation on Latin is interesting. Because yeah, yeah. It just wasn't by definition. Um, yeah, um, our attempt at confessions and just love the conversation, people listening to the extras. So mm. we're, we're trying to work out where that line that balance how is it we teach ourselves i think we also all know people that have over a period of time are no longer christian if they ever were let's not get into that discussion today Mm. but but what is it we can do to help equip ourselves as well is so there's there's lots of different factors going on yeah yeah Thank you so much, Raj, um, for helping us to understand a bit more of the Bible today and for sharing with us your thought and wisdom. Thank you, Candy, and thank you for everyone listening. Yeah. And so this coming Sunday, um, we're going to be looking, if you want to kind of read a a hint, um, we're going to be looking again at Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to, I believe, verse 27. So we'll... Um, send in more of your questions this coming Sunday and we'll answer them in the extras for next week. Thanks everyone. Thanks.